Hey, the title of the message is The Cross, The Crown, which is a reference actually to the fact that Jesus is the king, and the citizen, okay? The cross, the crown, the citizen, kind of an interesting trichotomy that really needs to be understood together. That's going to become more clear in just a little bit. Very, very important study. Here we are in Ephesians 2, verse 14 through 18. There's a story told of a little boy who was sitting on a curb in a town. He, he, was, he was lost, and a policeman saw him and asked, you know, where are your parents? And the little boy said, I don't know, I'm lost. I mean, could you take me home? And so the police officer said, well, um, okay, well, where is home? And the kid didn't really know. And so the police officer began to name certain streets and landmarks and things, and the boy wasn't recognizing them And then the police officer thought, okay, well, in the middle of the town, there's that really wonderful church with this really big monster white cross. And the police officer said, look, do do you know that, do you know that church with the really, really big cross, you know? And the boy's face lit up. Um, And the officer said, look, do do you live anywhere near that? And the boy said, take me to the cross and I can find my way home from there. Ah, there's something wonderful about the cross, right? Uh, The sign of the cross uh, can be a sign uh, today for medical help. I mean, you know, if you're in some country and you need medical help uh, and you need it fast and you're trying to find a hospital, sometimes a hospital will be identified by the sign of a cross. So this cross speaks of life, right? The cross speaks of healing. How many of you had a curiosity wear a cross? Just, just raise your hands out of curiosity. Okay. So many, well, quite a few of you wear a cross. I bought my wife a cross years ago, many years ago, and she still wears it, and it's so important to her and precious to her. And of course, that's in a form of jewelry, right? It could be silver, gold. And and what does it mean when we wear a necklace with a cross on it? Uh, what What are we saying? Are we celebrating God's love, his forgiveness, redemption in Christ? Are we saying that we are identifying with Jesus' death uh, there on the cross 2,000 years ago? Let me tell you something. If you go back 2,000 years, the cross did not speak of saving lives. Like the cross might speak of a hospital where, you know, you want to save life and give health. 2,000 years ago, the cross definitely did not speak of saving life or giving life. It certainly didn't speak of love. It certainly didn't speak of a second chance or redemption. Listen, the cross was the lowest form of execution in the Roman Empire. It was brutal. It was like criminal. It was painful. It was like death, death, death. Let me tell you, in a 40-mile radius in Rome... It was outlawed to even speak of the crucifix. Because it's, it's kind of like if you were at a dinner party or a Christmas party or something, and you're talking about the electric chair, you know? It's like, who wants to hear about the electric chair? That's brutally cold. The electric chair is repulsive. The, the electric chair is humane. Inhumane, excuse me. And perhaps you could better understand how the disciples needed to work through the idea when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself 
and pick up the, can someone tell me, cross. It's like, what? The cross is the lowest form of execution in the Roman Empire. Criminals are on the cross. I mean, to identify with the cross in that particular culture is to identify with a major minority that you don't really want to identify with, or do you? And yet, if the Gospels, I'm talking about the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, are the Gospel, then the cross is essential. Because all of the Gospels, the four books, lead to the crucifixion and dwell on it. In fact, this coincides with the emphasis in Ephesians and the passage before us. If you look here in verse 16, I think we have it up on the screen. I mean, the cross is actually essential to reconciliation with God. Now, that's a big idea. And if you're here for the first time, here's what you need to think of. Just check track with me, okay? The cross is actually essential to bring man in harmony with the true and living God. If you take man out of harmony with God, or maybe just think of this metaphor, like think of dancing with someone. You know, I sometimes will dance with my wife. I love it. And you're kind of in this beautiful harmony, right? And, and your feet are working together and things. Well, if you get out of step with Almighty God, the consequences are devastating and self-defeating. The cross, like, puts you in step, in harmony with love and justice and righteousness and, and the person of Almighty God. That's a good thing. And what Paul is saying here is, look, a university won't do that. A university won't bring you into like reconciliation with the Almighty. Technology can't do that. Exercise can't do that. The UN can't do that. I mean, it's incredible what he's saying. The cross is essential to reconciliation with Almighty God because the alternative would be if I'm not reconciled with God, I'm out of step with them, not in the right dance. I mean, the consequences of that are monstrous, not only to the individual, but to one's fellow man. In fact, he says in verse 18, now this is, this is like so off the charts. Okay, for through him, and we're talking Jesus, we both have, what's the next word, you guys? Access by one spirit to the Father. Whoa, think about this for a second. You know, if I were to ask you, do you think the world needs peace? I mean, look, you have varying ethnicities. We have nation states. There's the issue of Iran. There's the issue of Syria. Um, There, of course, is terrorism today. You have different worldviews. You have competing agendas. Okay, you have narcissism, you have materialism, you have sensualism. Um, We have 8 billion people on planet Earth. The stakes are only getting higher. There's been more wars in the last 100 years than any other time in human history. There's various ways of looking at that, but that's the flat-out fact. Here's the thing. You talk about an incredible peace plan. I mean, when it reads here in verse 18, through him, we, and that we is both Israel and the nations, it's like the entire world. We have access by one spirit to the Father. Here's what it's saying here. The Lord has a peace plan. It's actually to make the big, small, black, or white, the entire world, to have one daddy. It's like, okay, well... 
We all have different biological DNA. We all come from different parents and things like that, although we're all of the same race, the human race. But look, this plan here of the cross, essential to reconciliation with God. Number two, it's actually essential to having access to the Almighty, the Heavenly Father. You talk about a brilliant, brilliant plan. It's that the cross is the key actually to making every single human being on planet Earth, if they receive it and embrace Christ, to have the same daddy, if you will, to have access to the Father. Oh my goodness. If the cross is essential to reconciliation with God and man, and reconciliation between man and man, how desperately we need the cross. And yet, we're really not going to understand the reality of the cross outside, outside of the context. I'm going to call it the crown. And I'm referring to the fact that Jesus is the king. In fact, if I could just illustrate this, there's a melody. I love melodies, really good ones. There's a melody to this passage that I want everyone to hear. I want everyone to be moved by and it's a melody that you, when you put um, the DNA, the lyrics, the, melody, the, 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 the notes of, of the cross and, and the crown and the citizen, and you put them together, something just this incredible melody comes out. You know, I've read, written a few songs and things, and so I, I know a little bit of what it feels like to construct melodies. It's very interesting. Melodies can be very temperamental. Because if you slow it down, you almost, you can lose something. You speed up a melody, you know, you can lose something. You, gotta, you have to find that right tempo for like the song to, to really zing and to, to really be beautiful and brilliant. Well, the cross must be understood in the context of the crown that Jesus is king and that he's building his kingdom with a bunch of citizens because he is the king of the kingdom. And a kingdom is a sphere. A kingdom has a king. And a kingdom has citizens or subjects. In fact, verse 19, it says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. You say, what are you talking about this melody thing? Let me give you a small sample of what I mean. Watch this. If we, the cross... The lowest form of execution in the Roman Empire. Man, you have criminals on the cross. The day that Jesus gave his life on the cross, there were two others being crucified. They were criminals. So if, if you take away the crown from the cross, you're thinking, man, Jesus is losing on the cross. It's the ultimate loser thing. No, 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 no. Wait, you got to understand, he's the king. So he's triumphing through defeat. Oh, oh, but he's so apolitical, de-esteemed. No, what Jesus is doing on the cross definitely has a political dynamic because he's redefining power. And he's achieving a different power through weakness and service. Oh, oh, but they stripped him of all of his assets. I mean, didn't they, you know, like pick straws for his clothing and stuff. Actually, what he was doing was spreading his wealth. He was beginning to give it away. Oh, but a king, a king as citizens. Jesus is the king. You're telling me he's the king? Like, what are you talking about? The king of what? I'm talking about the king. Really? Well, at the cross, 
He has one of his disciples there, and he has a few women. And it's like, that doesn't sound like much of a kingdom to me. Well, Jesus said it would start small, like a mustard seed. Hey, think about it. Where's the aristocratic priesthood that led him to be crucified on a human level? They're gone. Hey, where's Rome? Gone. Napoleon? Gone. Hitler? Gone. But the citizens of the kingdom, yes, that started small, are in the billions today. And they're marching on. Can I hear an amen to that? See, can you, can you begin to hear this melody of the cross and the crown and the citizens? That, and you, when you can combine them, you just, something incredible comes out. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 18. I love this. We're going to look at a couple passages. John chapter 18. Jesus is standing before the Roman representative of the emperor of Rome, Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Judea. And it tells us in verse 28 of John chapter 18, that then they led Jesus from Caiaphas, who was the high priest, really corrupt guy, very non-spiritual guy, aristocrat, puppet of Rome, to the Praetorium, which is probably in Herod's palace, which is west of the city of Jerusalem. It was early morning. They themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And Pilate then went out to them and asked, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. And then Pilate said to him, will you take him and judge him according to your law? And therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. And Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said, look, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? I'm mean, your own nation. The chief priests, the aristocrats have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now pause here for a second. Oh, okay, my kingdom is not of this world. What, what is he saying there? I mean, now it's going to be drawn out. Pilate will ask, well, are you a king? And Jesus will say, I'm, clearly I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Are, are you saying, Jesus, that your kingdom is immaterial? Is your, your kingdom is something that you don't actually see with the naked eye? It's something surreal. It's kind of a land of Oz thing. It's some spiritual thing. You know, my kingdom is not of this world. Is that what you are saying? You know, because if it was of this world, if it was something material that would be evident to the naked eye, you know, on planet Earth, well, it would coincide that you would be fighting then, right? Because that's how people generally gain superiority over others and establish their leadership, they fight. And Jesus says, look, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Wait, 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 Jesus, what, what, what exactly are you saying here? The idea really is not that um, his, his kingdom is the antithesis of something material. 
What Jesus is saying here is, is I don't build my kingdom out of this world. I build it with totally different timber, if you will, totally different values, totally different purpose. I, I'm actually, re, my kingdom is a totally redefinition of what power is. And it tells us in verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, well, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you have said rightly, I am a king. And for this cause, I was born. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the, can someone tell me, truth. Really, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Oh, like, wait, okay, what, what is truth? How about the truth that the real enemy is actually not Rome? And so Jesus would come into Jerusalem like, I don't know, an Islamic invader? And pull out his sword and just start fighting against Roman things. Um, no, the real enemy is not Rome. Today, the real enemy is not Russia or Iran or cyber warfare or gangs or the police or America or Republicans or even Democrats. Hey, 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 it's a third party. The real enemy is a, is a third party that, that is playing us, you guys. And this third party is sin, death, it's darkness. It's the darkness of the Satan. Look, go back to chapter 12, very important. If you go back to chapter 12 of John, look at verse 27. And you can begin to even hear this melody of the cross and the crown and the citizen all the more. Because it tells us in verse 27, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem prior to his exchange with Pilate after his arrest, It says in verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me for this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. An hour speaks of a specific time, specific opportunity, specific reality. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that, said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now look at verse 31. This is very important. Now this is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, which is a common idiom for crucifixion, I will draw all peoples to myself. And this he said, signifying by what death he would die. Look up here for a second. This is critical. The truth? What is truth? How about the truth that the real problem of man is not like, oh, it's the Democrats versus the Republicans. It's like, as I said, it's the gangs, it's the police, it's um, Russia, it's Iran, uh, it's Islam. I mean, that's, that's the real enemy that, you know, is pulling us all down and stuff like that. Um, how about the truth that there's a 
Well, Jesus talked about him like a strong man, that he is binding. This ruler here that he mentions of the world will be cast out. Hey, remember the context. When Jesus gives his life on the cross, I mean, it's the very day that the Lord judges, historically judges the sin in Egypt, breaks the, the bow, if you will, of a godless leader, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And Jesus is lifted up on the cross 1,300 years later to the very day. And he is going after a different ruler. He, he is crushing a different ruler, and that is the Satan himself. Look, the real enemy is the power of darkness, the Satan, sin, death, separation from God. And Jesus was willing to take the full power of evil and accusation actually upon himself to take the blow. I mean, there's some mixing of metaphors here, but Paul said, the sting of death is sin. You know, so when Jesus was on the cross, I mean, what's taking place? But he is actually being stung, it could be said, by all the, the bees of sin, past, present, and future. It's like he is bearing it so that then sin and death and Satan himself no longer has power over us. It's like, you know, it's like that story and the father and son driving in a truck and a bee came into the cab of the truck and the son was allergic to bees and that bee landed right on the shoulder of the son and the father went over and grabbed the bee and held onto it. And boy, the son was so excited, so happy that took place and stuff. He wouldn't be stung. He happened to be allergic to bees. And his dad held that bee in his hand for a while as he retained control of the truck. And then finally he opened his hand and that bee began to fly around in the truck and the son got really paranoid. Dad, why did you let go of the bee? And he says, son, look, look, look in my hands and see because the stinger is in my hands. That bee cannot hurt you whatsoever. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross 2,000 years ago, he took He took the sting of every stinking sin in human history that separates us, that that gets us out of harmony with Almighty God. And because of that, He is the one and the only one that brings reconciliation with Almighty God. Look, one Bible teacher put it this way, the real enemy, after all, was not Rome but the powers of evil that stood behind human arrogance and violence. On the cross, the kingdom of God triumphed over the kingdoms of the world by refusing to join into into their spiral of violence. And on the cross, Jesus would love his enemies, turn the other cheek, go the second mile. This upside-down pattern so contradicts the thinking and notice of the world that it creates an alternative, alternate kingdom, an alternate reality, alternate reality, a counterculture among those who have been transformed by it. In this peaceable kingdom, there's a reversal of values of the world with regard to power, recognition, status, and wealth. I mean, think about this. What good would it have been if Jesus would have established? Because he is the king. He is the sovereign. King of what? We're talking the universe. 
We're talking Almighty God stepping down, becoming a man. What good it would have been had he established his physical reign on planet Earth with um, brokenness. The brokenness due to sin, death, and Satan. If those are not defeated, um, what good would his physical reign on earth been? Those are the real enemies that he came to conquer. Can you better understand why Paul wrote, and we've been talking about this for a little bit, may I never boast or glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because not only is the cross key to peace with God, where you have the moral governor of the universe who has to judge sin and injustice. You have the moral governor of the universe paying the debt himself. The just one becomes the justifier. But the cross is actually the key to peace with our fellow man. And Paul is just saying, look, um, I'm going to tell you something. I didn't understand that for a while, but I understand that now. And I, God forbid that I, I would glory in anything other, like just put the most significance and weight in the cross. I mean, God forbid that I'd find myself glorying in anything other than the cross itself because that's where peace is made with God and that's where peace is made with one's fellow man. We've talked about this, but think it through. Jeremiah 9, the Bible says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. In other words, let him not put significance in the weight of you know, value in his academia. I mean, the cross needs to take preeminence of over all of that. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, his physicality, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, materialism. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Because if one glories, and we've talked about this in his academia, or his physicality, his materialism, his trophies, his family, his ethnicity. It promotes feelings of superiority over others. And the peace is gone. There's more to the melody. We haven't even addressed the citizens. Look at verse 19, you guys. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. And these are major, big, monstrosity ideas that we're going to have to come back to, really just scratching the surface of this text. But we are fellow, what's the next word, you guys? Citizens. Well, look, The idea of a citizen, well, 2,000 years ago, is really big. And it is today. Really big today. I mean, you have a lot of people who want to come to America to be a citizen of America. I mean, I'll tell you something. If I was living in Mexico and I had a family, I would do anything I could to get to America. That's for sure. I'd probably be one of those trying to get over the border. Hope it doesn't bum everybody out. But you know, I would be trying to get my family here. To be a citizen of America or to be in America is a great thing. I'm not going to call for a name in, but you know, it's awesome, right? But citizenship, big issue. Very important. Always has been. But to think that means if I'm a citizen of, of, of heaven, 
to think in such a way that I think, well, that's just means, therefore, it's some future reality is, is not accurate. And we're going to talk further about this next week. But the idea of being a citizen in this kingdom, sometimes we think, well, what does that really look like? I mean, did, did, did Jesus, like, a, like, you know, he came and he hung blood, gave his life on the cross, bridged the gap between God and man. Did, did he come to lead this new exodus, you know, because it happened to be on Nisan 14 Passover. Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt into a new land. Is, is the new land heaven like some future reality that we spend eternity with the Lord? Yes, but it, it's actually something very much in the here and now. In fact, Paul mixes his metaphors here. And I'm glad he does because it tells us that the citizenship has so much to do with right now. If you look at verse 21, he says, it grows into a holy, what's the next word, you guys? Temple. Look, a temple is where the divine and kind of the, 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 where the divine and human meet. You had the temple in Jerusalem where God's presence was uniquely there. The idea of a temple is where, oh, where I, it's like where I meet the Lord, where I worship Him, where I communicate with Him. Well, now you have believers who's like this, well, they're the temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, verse 22 says, in whom you also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Whoa! Wait, I mean, God uniquely manifests himself in Jerusalem, true. You uniquely manifest in the tabernacle, absolutely. I mean, John writes that he dwelt among us, referring to Jesus, tabernacled amongst us. Jesus said, destroy this temple. He was speaking of himself, God becoming man, God coming down. Now, actually, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is with us. How many of you believe that? Just raise your hand, you guys. You better believe it. So it's a big mistake to solely think that Jesus' earthly ministry was to demonstrate, to solely demonstrate he's divine. He's going to spearhead this new exodus as the Passover land. And the objective is which is to take us out of this bondage of the earth and sin and corruption to a whole other world. I mean, is there hope beyond the grave? Yes. Is there eternity? Yes. But here's the thing. The Lord, the Lord wants us to think. He wants us to think of actually of his presence and his glory in our lives today that the cross and the resurrections were actually, this, this resurrection, excuse me, was this incredible demonstration of Jesus launching his kingdom. The incarnation of Christ was a demonstration, a launch of the kingdom that God is building in which heaven, God's glory and presence is to be experienced on earth. And yes, ultimately in glory with him forever and ever and ever. But the idea that it's like, okay, well, I'm a citizen. And, and, and the Bible says we are citizens of heaven. True. 
But if it's this idea that you think, okay, well, that means that, you know, Jesus came and he hung blood, he gave his life on the cross, and then he resurrected, and he's like the new Moses, if you will, and he's going to take us away. And that's what, that's what it is to be a citizen. It's like you have a residence, a future residence. Well, oh, that's true, but it's very much of a reality in the here and now. Look, in a few moments, we're going to receive communion. I mean, what is communion? It's the recognition that heaven came down in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, that he's the Savior King, that he rescued us, and he's still actually rescuing us. Is there more room in your life for a rescue? Of course there is. We're all under construction. And one day he will rescue all things, and all things will be under his headship. So when I partake of communion, what I am saying is, I am a citizen of heaven now. And actually, I can experience and know his glory in the here and now. Remember the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be our name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Forgive us our, can someone tell me? Debts, okay? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Let me tell you something. I mean, it's like, it could be said the greatest way that we have seen the glory of heaven, the glory of God on earth is at the cross where Jesus is paying the debt of our sin, which tells us the greatest need we have is his forgiveness in our life. Is not only to receive it, listen, but actually to give it away as well. I mean, one of the reasons the Lord wants us to forgive is, well, it's a part of his, it's a part of heaven coming down on earth. It's part of his building of his kingdom, his redemptive work. It's part of the healing of the world. And, and it's one of the ways he continues to heal us as well. One of the reasons the Lord is saying, okay, look, um, I want you to forgive those who trespass against you is because he doesn't want you under the injury of the injustice. One person said, resentment makes you miserable and it keeps you stuck in the past. And when you're stuck in the past, you're controlled by the past. And every time you resent something, it controls you. And some of you are allowing people who hurt you five, 10, or even 20 years ago to hurt you this very day. And that's stupid. Don't let it happen. The Lord actually hung, bled, gave his life on the cross that we might not only know the forgiveness, but give it away, which is a part of the way heaven comes down to earth. His glory is known. Okay, so what is forgiveness? Let me remind you of a few things. Forgiveness is remembering how much you've been forgiven. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgiveness is relinquishing your right to get even. Just forgive and just commit it to God. Forgiveness is responding to evil with good. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Forgiveness is repeating the process as long as it is necessary over and over and over again. Now, forgiveness, I think I have it on the notes there, doesn't mean necessarily that the trust is restored. That takes time. 
Forgiveness is going vertical, Lord. I'm not going to hold this debt over this person going horizontal. I'm going to be not under the control of the injury, the injustice, the pain. I want to be filled by your spirit with love and kindness, and I'm going to act on that. Oh, man, that's, that's bringing heaven down on the earth. Oh, man, that's, that's what's needed in our relationships, in our families, in our church. Hey, forgiveness... Well, let me put it this way. It's like applying the wood. And by that I mean, I'm just reminded, Exodus chapter 15. I'll make the story short. You have the children of Israel, speaking of the Exodus. And the Lord has opened up the Red Sea. They're three days in the Sinai, three days in the desert. And they're so thirsty. And they come to the waters of Marah. And Mara means bitter. And they try to drink these waters and it's just undrinkable. And the people are flip-flipping out, you know, they're so thirsty and they're complaining to Moses and Moses looks to the Lord. He goes vertical and he cries out to the Lord and the Lord instructs him to take this tree, this wood that is there and throw it in the waters. And he does. And the waters become sweet and become drinkable and they give life and refreshment. Look, how many of you know life at times is bitter and it's challenging. Life is not easy. A lot of moving parts. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Marriage at times is not easy. Raising children at times is not easy. Living a godly life is not easy. At times it's bitter and it's challenging. The key is we need to apply the wood (laughs) We need to remember he hung, bled, gave his life on the cross for us, paid the debt of our sin. He wants us to afresh receive his forgiveness and he wants us to give it away. Look, what we need is more heaven on the earth. Now, watch this. Turn with me real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to show you something before we receive communion. What Paul is doing actually with the Corinthians at this time is, if you could believe it, he's actually applying the wood, the cross. You say, what are you talking about? If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll notice here in verse 23 down to verse 26, he is addressing Passover. He's addressing when Jesus said, I want you to think of Passover, the, the historical event and the Passover meal now in terms of my body and my blood and what I would accomplish, Okay. But let me, let me share with you the context here. The reason why, in verse 23 down to verse 26, he, he's addressing the person and work of Jesus. He's addressing the wood, if you will, the cross, and he's applying it at this particular time in the book to the Corinthians is because there was a lot of, let's just say it this way, a lot of bitterness in Corinth. I mean, there was selfishness, there was strife, there, they were tearing each other apart, there was guruism, like, like the esteeming of these pastors and Apollos and Peter or Paul. It's like, what about Jesus? Like, Jesus is the head of the church. There was sexual immorality. I mean, this, this was a legit church, and they, they were believers in the Lord Jesus, but they were in a rested state of growth. There was an absence of love for God and for one another. To be honest with you, it was somewhat of a mess. 
And what does Paul do? He, it's like he applies the wood. He says, you, we don't have time to develop the context, but they were a selfish church and not thinking of other people. And they weren't growing as God had intended it. And what Paul does is that you guys, um, you need to remember that Passover that Jesus said in verse 24, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In verse 25, in the same manner he took the cup and this cup is the new covenant in my blood, not your sweat. What I've accomplished, it's a gift. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's, what's the next word, you guys? Death, okay? You, you, you are celebrating the, the past work of Christ till he, what? Comes. Look up here for a second, watch. Here's what he's saying. Corinth, here's what you need. You need to look back and remember he was lifted up. And he said he would draw all men to himself. You need to remember the cross and the crown You need to remember you're a citizen of the kingdom now. You need to remember everything is moving towards him. You you need to have a proper view, like, like between the cross and the crown, when Jesus comes in full display of his glory and he establishes his kingdom on planet earth. And you you need to work that through and what it looks like in your life in the here and now. You need to, as he goes on to say, to discern the Lord's body. And that's what we need to do. We need to do that today. Because it brings, um, well, it, it brings heaven down to earth. We experience the glory of the kingdom today. Not just in the future, but today. Today that, like, I'm in Christ. And today, I'm a member of the body of Christ. I mean, Jesus is not here in bodily form, but he does have a body, and you and I make up that body. Can I hear another amen to that? Well, that reorients me. Boy, I really see citizenship now. It's like, whoa. I'm the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm a member of the church locally, not just universally. I know everything is moving towards him. I'm forgiven and, and I am being called as an ambassador of this kingdom to like go make Jesus known and love people. To be a part of the glory of the kingdom for which Jesus is the king today. One person said the purpose of the church's life is to be the people of God for the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, but the church can only be this if she is constantly being recalled to the story and message of scripture without which She will herself lapse in the world's ways of thinking. And the great expositor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says that coming to the table, we're going to receive the bread in the cup a little bit, is the acid test to the believer. 
I mean, it real, it, it, it's like how we respond to the bread. I, the bread is symbolic of Jesus' broken body and that he gave for us. And I partake of it. I'm saying I'm one with Christ, but I'm also one with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We have many things that we don't have in common, but the most important things we do have in common. So it's like when I receive communion, I'm identifying with Jesus and I'm also pledging love towards my fellow brother and sister in Christ. And when I receive the cup, it's like, my goodness, the, his precious blood that, which speaks of his life as atonement for our sins. Not only am I afresh saying, my goodness, the greatest need I have is reconciliation with God and I've received that and I'm reconciled in Christ and the greatest need I have is his forgiveness, but also I am a part, actually. I'm an ambassador now. I'm a citizen of this kingdom and, I, and I'm a part of his hands and feet to bring healing to this world. And one of the ways that takes place is, yes, making Christ known, calling people to faith in Jesus, and also loving them and forgiving them, beginning in our families, in our church family, in our neighbors and our friends. Look, this beautiful melody, the cross, the crown, the citizen, Jesus, Jesus told many stories trying to give perspective on what the kingdom is like. And one of them was he told a story about wheat growing. And there's this, these weeds that grow up in the wheat. I'll just paraphrase it real quick. That are really not wheat. They're not the real thing. And they're very, very difficult. They're very difficult to differentiate. You, you, you don't differentiate them until the harvest. And he said that basically just saying, look, um, you're, you're going you're gonna to have people who think they're Christians, but they're really not Christians. Because here's the thing. I should have no confidence whatsoever that I'm really a citizen of the kingdom. I'm the citizen of heaven unless my life aligns with the king himself. I mean, none of us are perfect, but, but honestly, if there's like habitual sin, if there's like sexual immorality, if I'm living with my girlfriend, I'm doing drugs, you know, I'm just lying all the time and stuff, that is indicative. Actually, you're not a citizen of the kingdom. But the good news is you can be if you repent and turn to Christ. And I believe that's what he's going to call you to do this morning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay. Listen. Jesus, Jesus is the king. Jesus is building his kingdom. Can I hear an amen to that? There are citizens of that kingdom, much bigger than the United States. It's much bigger than Russia. It's much bigger than any nation or any power or authority. Much bigger than that. And in 2015, we have the incredible opportunity to be his ambassadors. So let's, let's come to the table. Let's, let's discern his body and his precious blood. And, and let us, you guys, let us all just say, Lord, 
you, you know, there's more that you can have in my life, and I am willing for you to have it. Have your way. Can I hear an amen to that? Have your way. 